you can always tell a city by the people who are in it. I don't know if you've ever noticed when you travel and if you find yourself somewhere, if you don't really know what that city might be for or what that city's main economic point is, soon you'll see it as you watch and see. Washington, D.C. is one of the great cities to visit, free museums, lots of things. But as you sort of find the spot and people watch, what you'll see is a city that obviously is consumed by power. It's a place of government. Everything orientates around what to see, where decisions are made. The busyness of those in the suits moving from one thing to another, people thirsting and longing for power and trying to influence it. And then all those sort of symbols of places that represent uh, power in one of the greatest nations of the world. When I was there last year, I was sort of always perplexed by this strange duality. Here you had, in a sense, this great picture of democracy and Western power and civilization, the pinnacle of the White House sort of being there. And then, but a stone's throw away, you had a homeless camp. People who had nothing. Uh, you people clambering, in a sense, to get their picture uh, outside a fairly average-looking building because of what it represented, uh, and that while they were clambering to get there, they made their way through those that they couldn't see or didn't want to see. And I'll be honest, I didn't really want to see them either, but uh, I was confronted one morning, uh, getting off the tube, the underground, uh, when at the top of the stairs there waiting for me was one man, not waiting for me specifically, was standing. Uh, and as I made my way up slowly, the escalator, I could see that I had a, a, not much room to maneuver and I was trying to figure out what was going on. And as I got to the top, uh, he asked me something along the likes of, do you love the Lord? Now, I couldn't really say no. I couldn't really ignore him with what uh, my job was. I would feel quite guilty afterwards. And so I said yes, and this um, got me into a conversation. Uh, and as we chatted, uh, he asked for help. He asked for help, someone to get him a train ticket so he could go somewhere. And as we chatted a bit more, uh, the sort of perception receded, and the person came forward as I, as I remembered in a sense, and I was talking to someone. He shared some of his life story. And what was fascinating was, what was sorrowful almost, was that all of the city represented he once was. He was in government. He worked in a high position. He had influence and power and status. At one point, he was someone that the world wanted to know and longed to sort of be associated with. And then life does what it so often does as it navigated through unexpected family circumstances, stressful situations, and he found himself descending from the mountaintop into a dark valley, homeless and broken and longing for help. And I find myself feeling sorry for him, compassion, maybe pity in some sense. But what was amazing was, as he sort of told this sorrowing story at the end, when I was probably at my most, he said, but you do what? Something along the lines of, God has always provided. It's a simple line, but it was profound because how often we long for things, how often we might lose certain things and we think 
We've been through difficult times. And here was someone broken, unseen by the world, walked past and ignored it. And himself remembering what that felt like. And even though it looked like his life was at its lowest, his hope, his certainty, his assurance was steadfast because it wasn't in these things. And if you cannot, if you're not based in it, when you lose it, then it doesn't have the same effect and patience. God has always provided. It's a simple statement of theological truth. And it was profound because of who it was spoken from. Someone who had lost so much, but had known the same Lord through every season. And we see that today in this psalm, in the second part of Psalm 9. Uh, last week, the sort of triumph and joy that was so clear and so abounding there, as David rejoiced in who God was and what God had done, and reminded us of the center of our hope, of the foundation of our hope, and of the confidence that that hope should bring to us in the good times, in every situation, as he reminded us in a sense of this great Lord, you, Lord, have brought the nations, you have defeated my enemy, you have provided, as he reminded us of what it was to worship, to bear the name of Jesus. It was joyful. And if we stopped at verse 12, that is where it would have ended. But then we have this great shift in the second half of the psalm as we descend, in a sense, from the mountaintop as the psalm's tone and heart changes. There seems to be a weight now upon David's shoulder. The reality of whatever situation that he's in, the weight of worry and enemies encroaching, the hymns of triumph and rescue are silent as David cries out. As he begs for help and for rescue from this place that he finds himself in. As he, his utterance is not marked by distress because we don't know where God is, but rather because David longs that God will hear him. And in verse 12 here, if you remember last week, as David echoed in that sense that uh, the Lord will hear the cry of the afflicted. David wasn't speaking about some far-off truth that didn't matter to him. He was declaring something universal, yes, to the downcast, to the forgotten, to the walk past. The Lord hears and sees, but he was saying it personally for him. As in verse 13, where we start today, we see that he is talking to himself. And now we see why, as he describes the plight that he finds himself in, Lord seeing how my enemies persecute me. Lift me up from the gates of death. He's at his life's end. Whatever thing he is in, whatever he is going through, it is as if he is standing there with the, the gates of death ready to open. He feels like he has nowhere to turn. He is the afflicted in that sense that he spoke about. And what does he think? But God. Lord, hear, see how my enemies have mercy on and lift me up. Verse 12, verse 13, and then verse 14. Why? 
that I may declare your praises and, re and there rejoice in your salvation. We've all felt like that. Because the reality is, if we have lived at all, we have found ourselves at some point in our life in difficulty, in distress, with worry and sorrow, sometimes by our own stupidity, sometimes by things outside of our circumstances, we find ourselves in one click of a finger, moving in that sense from a mountaintop uh, to a valley and wondering where the Lord is. It mightn't be in that sense as such imagery as the gates of death. We might not find ourselves worrying if we'll even get through to tomorrow, but if we have lived on this earth long enough, then the effects of a broken and sinful world have borne on our lives. And we've all felt it. The reality of this world that we live in, regardless of where we stand before God, because the world is broken. Because sin affects every part of it. It affects those who lead us in government. It affects the reality of the nature around us. And it affects us. And this psalm, in this psalm, David invites us, yes, into understanding that. And then, in our understanding, he reminds us to see what should distinguish him. Because he feels the weight of the world. But what is his prayer? Verses 12 and 13 and 14. To be rescued, yes but to be rescued for a purpose, that he might declare your praises. He seeks the mercy of God so that his life might make known the grace of God. Not rescue me, Lord, so that I can go back to the easy times. It's not rescue me, Lord, so that I might enjoy life again. Rescue me, God, from the gates of Hades, so that the gates of Zion, as in salvation, as in heaven, that as I am ready there, there might I sing your praises, declare your salvation, and rejoice in it. He wants this rescue so that he can, in a sense, simply declare again the goodness of God. And that's what marks the Christian life is separate from the life of the world. We all long for rescue from brokenness, but in those who walk in Christ, who walk with the Lord in that sense, what we long for above all, through all, and in all is that God is known. And so David models that reality of our hope that we know God will rescue and the outworkings of us in that sense that in that rescue, we want God to be known. It's a life that is still lived for God. It is a life that is grounded in what has been sung last week, was he cried, you, Lord, have done this. You, Lord, have rescued. You, Lord, have saved. And it remains all about God. Even as the world is in chaos, the people of God will always live confidently in Christ because in a simple truth, our hope is not from this world. And if our hope is not from this world, then there is nothing this world can do around us or to us or with us that will affect that hope. There's nothing that you can do that takes that hope from you if you know Christ as Lord. 
And this is the beautiful thing of the gospel, this weird, in a sense, duality that makes no sense to those who do not know it because they look to the world. And to those who do know it, it makes perfect sense. We have joy in every season because in every season we have God. Think of Paul when he wrote, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who God has called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And thus, by the hope of the cross, by the rescue of the crucified Savior, who defeated our biggest problems, sin, who showed that the worst of situations across death will be used by God for the greatest of purposes, we are reminded again and again of what our hope is and what our hope is doing. God is at work in the world. In the second part of this section of the psalm, we see a world in chaos, and yet we see the people of God confident. As the psalm goes on, we're reminded of the chaotic nature of the world that we live in. It is spawned. It is so bad that the nations, in a sense, are falling into their own traps. Verse 15, the leaders are so stupid that they don't remember where they have laid snares for the enemies, and so they strip over them themselves. As David paints a picture of the world, evil and chaos are everywhere. Government seems to lack wisdom and depravity abound. And as the world is in chaos, as David faces his own crisis, his hope remains steadfast and certain because he knew that individual rescue. So he's seen it again and again. But he also knows and trusts that God is at work in this chaotic world. Remember this psalm, the second half, we hear in the context of David having already just said, you have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. God is at work in the world, always, eternally, working it, even amid the worst of situations for his good and for his purposes. Far more than simply being present and doing things, we're reminded here that God has a plan. And it's contrasted against, in a sense, the reality of worldly leaders. They stumble over themselves. They fall into their own pits. Verse 15. But the Lord is known by the acts of his justice. Verse 16. The wicked are ensnared by the works of their hands. That which they set out to do to harm others actually ends up harming themselves. But the Lord is known by how just he is. Today, we could be describing the news that we watch every day. Even in the last few years, we see conflicts and situations that remind us so clearly and so constantly of the brokenness that we live in. We see it in the city around us, the reality of human life. Think of places like Ukraine and the conflicts in South Sudan, the chaos that's going on and unfolding in the Middle East. And as our prayers go up, in a sense, for all who are affected by the realities of sin and the evils of war, we're reminded simply that we do not pray aimlessly. We pray to a God who is at work 
to bring, to protect his children and to bring justice into the world. Psalm 5, verse 4, For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil is not welcome. And it was dealt with at the cross, and it will be dealt with fully one day. And so we have this picture of the wicked nations being dealt with, and then the unseen as a contrast. Those who rely on God with the sense of selfish living, evil in their sights, marked in a sense by all the chaos of selfishness as it doesn't walk wisely. And then in verse 17 and 18, it's contrasted further in a sense by those that the world does not see. But God uses here as an example. But God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. As we see, we have an image of eternal and we have an image of temporary. The wicked, the psalmist says, go down to the realm of the dead. In their selfishness, in their confusion, and in their self-centeredness, they walk themselves to oblivion. But the needy, those who rely on God, even when it feels like he is not there, he will never forget them, and their hope will never perish. Why? Because their hope is not from this world. We can have hope in the outcome of our lives because we have and we know who that hope is in, Christ. And so the psalm concludes, not in lament, not without hope, but with a reminder of who this God is and what he has done already. Yes, the chaos of the world is overwhelming. Yes, it can be hard to know where we are or where we're coming from. Yes, we can feel the fragility of our lives. Yet, we're to trust and know the wonder and majesty of life with God. As we think of the power of even the governments of our age, the psalmist tells us that their power is but a whisper to the majesty and glory of God. And the last two verses in the psalm here are written in such a tone and style uh, that we're to be reminded that while, yes, there is a time when any nation is powerful, there is a day that follows when it is soon forgotten. And against that reality of a broken world is the eternal reality of God, who is good, who is just, and who is concerned for you. In Psalm 8, the psalmist asks the question, What is mankind that you are mindful of him, that you clothe him with righteousness? And Psalm 9 plays on that in a sense with the same imagery, except this time it is not with clothes of righteousness, but wickedness. As those who choose a life other from God receive what it is they have chosen. David knows the hope of the afflicted will never perish because God is a God who acts. And so as this psalm moves into Psalm 10, which sort of follows on in the same imagery and tone, 
we're reminded that evil, humanity that lives apart from God, will know its place under the justice of God. As David prays for God to arise, it is a prayer, quite simply, that God will act. That God will do always what God has done. That he will rule the world with justice and fairness. That he will save those who turn to him. And we are certain of this, that as we seek him, he is already seeking us. And his arms are open. He invites us in. The cross of Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me, it is there we know both the justice of God and the welcome of God that will rest for weary sinners. So as we conclude this psalm, in the psalmist, in the whole psalm, we see an example of what our discipleship should look like in every situation of life. The psalm models what living for Christ looks like in the good times, rejoicing to God, praising his name, and models what it looks like to live for God in difficult times. Hope that abounds regardless of what the reality is. Hope that is real because it is not of this world and there is nothing that this world can do to take it from it. Because our hope is built on God's eternal goodness, his character, his love. It is not built on people or things because they will disappoint, they will disappear. The hope of the gospel is hope in every situation, every situation. Because God is at work in every situation. And that's not some abstract truth that's easy for me to say. It's not some theoretical thing that sounds good. It is real because we see it in the life of those who follow Christ around us. We have all known someone who has faced difficulty and yet there is something more in their spirit. And that's God at work. It's tangible. It's powerful. And so there's nothing that we can do to take ourselves from it. There's no sin in a sense that God cannot forgive and there's nothing that can be done around us or to us by the world and in the world to remove that which from us that God has given us. And so we're to worship. We're to proclaim him amongst the nations as the earlier verses said. We're to trust that as he rescued us from the gates of death to the gates of salvation that there we will rejoice and make known his name. And we know how the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish. Why? By the cross of Christ. So today, let us know that hope of Christ in our lives. Let us be sure of where we stand with God. It is never too early. It is never too late to come to him. And if we seek him, he has already sought us. And then let us proclaim and live out that hope in a hopeless world, with acts of deed, with acts of justice, with deeds of mercy, walking humbly before our God, like we saw on Thursday, so that others might do him and that we might make him know. Let us pray.